Does anybody need a, a confession of faith? Do you need uh, uh, the blue basket up on the, the top there? Jim's grabbing it for you. Uh, anybody else need a copy of the confession of faith? You can turn to chapter 8. Chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator. I remember last time that we did an introduction to Christology. We, we talked about, uh, we introduced the topic and also spent time on the importance of it. So we didn't actually read from the confession. Uh, then we simply introduced the study. Now I'm going to open with the reading of the first two paragraphs. So the first two paragraphs of chapter 8, and then we'll get into a study of the introduction to the chapter in brief, and then the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is chapter 8, beginning at paragraph 1. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of his church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed, and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. And so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man." So there are a number of other paragraphs after that, and we'll, we'll seek to read through some of those as we move forward. It, 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 it's my idea, and, and I, can, I can check to, to make sure that it's okay, but um, with regards to the doctrine of Christ in chapter 8, to look at first the identity of Christ, the person of Christ, and then to look at his work. So this morning, I just want to do a brief intro to the chapter, and then we'll look at the identity of Christ first at the point of his deity. Um, because it's obviously a very important doctrine. Uh, it is of the utmost importance in the Christian faith, a non-negotiable, um, an irrevocable. It's one that is, um, it, one, it, it is one that is absolutely central to and vital to our profession as Christians. And so we'll begin then just with a, just with a, a very brief review of last time. Remember that we looked at an introduction to the doctrine of Christ, and we noted some important, uh, important interpretive rules or observations when engaging in a study of Christ. And those were that, first, truths contained in Holy Scripture are either A, expressly set, set down, or B, necessarily contained. And so in our job of doing theology, and when I say our job, I mean simply the Christian's job, uh, whether the, the, the man in the pulpit or the, you know, the man or woman, boy or girl in the pew, is to recognize that particular rule of Scripture. 
Uh, secondly, we are not to attend to nakedness of words, but to fullness of meaning. We noted Jerome stating that it's not simply the bare words that we attend to in the scriptures, but the fullness of the meaning, that is the meaning or the, the understanding of the words themselves. And the reason I point that out is because heretics of old have cited scripture, heretics of new cite scripture irresponsibly in just a wooden literalness approaching the words themselves without seeking to see the words as they are clothed with the divine meaning. Um, thirdly, there are clearer passages that are to be searched to answer questions about the true and proper sense of the less clear. That's sort of a, a paraphrase of, uh, of chapter 1 and paragraph 6, or a, a section of it. So, if we approach the Bible and we see, in this case, texts concerning uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, for example, where he says something like, the Father is greater than I, we don't just then somehow conclude that Christ, uh, according to his deity as the Son of God, he must be somehow lesser than the Father. We need to seek out passages that speak to his um, uh, you know, unrivaled deity or unmitigated deity, uh, and the fact that, of course, he assumed our humanity, and so that that statement must, of course, mean with uh, 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 or touch upon the fact that he assumed our humanity. Uh, we also noted that the unchanging divine perfections uh, and the unchanging divine perfections of the Son, uh, that those truths serve to undergird our understanding of the person of the Son. So in the background, uh, well, in the foreground, uh, as we're studying the Lord Jesus Christ, we ought to have chapter 2, uh, paragraphs 1 through 3 in, uh, in, our, um, in our minds, and we'll, we'll look at that in, in a few moments. Uh, fifthly, uh, we noted, and lastly, the recognition of the union of the two natures in the one Christ, uh, so that when we come across particular texts that speak in a lowly manner, uh, and some texts, when we, they speak in a highly manner, we're to rightly navigate what that pertains to. For example, Chrysostom says, when anything lowly is said of him conjoined as he is with the flesh, there is no disparagement of the Godhead in what is said, the economy admitting the expression. Or maybe more easily to understand, attributing to the deity the higher and diviner expressions and the lower and more human to him who for us men was the second Adam, Gregory of Nazianza. So when we, when we read of Christ uh, sleeping, hungering, thirsting, praying, bleeding, dying. We're not to ascribe those things to his deity. Those are the, the lowly and human sayings. But when we read of Christ forgiving sins, uh, when we read of Christ uh, stopping the winds uh, of the storm, when we read uh, of Christ knowing the minds of men, when we see Christ saying things like, I am, we're obviously to uh, attribute those uh, higher and diviner sayings to his divine nature. All right. <laughs> someone's listening or someone's speaking. Um, okay, so I wanted to add just two, two quick uh, rules connected to that last one as we understand, um, as we seek to understand the sayings of Christ, the, the, the um, writings concerning Christ in the Bible more, and to rightly understand when certain things are said of Christ in certain manners. And one of those things comes in paragraph 3, and that's the role of the Holy Spirit with respect to the, to the incarnate Christ. You can very briefly see there at the beginning of paragraph 3, 
The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to the divine in the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. So as we, as we work through the confession, uh, we'll make a note that that's an important thing to recognize as well. Not simply, well, simply and gloriously, the deity of Christ, his humanity, the, the singleness or the unity of the person, but also the fact that the Holy Spirit is intimately involved with respect to the man Christ Jesus in regards to his assumed humanity as he goes about the task of mediatorship. Isaiah promised it. Christ recognizes that prophecy concerning himself in the gospel accounts that Isaiah's promise of the spirit being upon the servant uh, comes true in his, uh, is in his own life and ministry. And then, of course, the mediatorship of Christ, which is connected to uh, him being very God and very man, yet one Christ. So let's, um, let's look then just briefly at an introduction to the chapter, and then we'll jump into the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the identity of Christ, that he is very God. Uh, James Renahan summarizes the, the chapter this way, uh, or I'm sort of paraphrasing, but this, this comes from him essentially. Uh, a threefold outline to, to the chapter, there are ten paragraphs. Uh, a summary of the doctrine of Christ, paragraph one. The person of Christ, paragraphs 2, 3, 7, and 9. And then the work of Christ, paragraphs 4, 5, 6, 8, and 10. So a very simple and helpful uh, outline to, to the chapter. Uh, a summary or an introduction to the doctrine of Christ, and then the person of Christ and the work of Christ. That is what Christology is. That is what the study of Christ is. A study of the person and work of Christ. The uh, the, uh, the, the glory of his person and the virtue of his respective offices. Um, an extended outline based on every single paragraph, very briefly. A summary of the doctrine of Christ, paragraph 1. A statement on the person of Christ, paragraph 2. The Trinity and the incarnate Christ, paragraph 3. The historical execution of his mediatorial task, paragraph 4. The perfect completion, of his mediatorial task, paragraph 5, the scope of his mediatorial task relative to Old Testament saints, paragraph 6, incarnational and, and interpretive rules governing the doctrine of Christ, paragraph 7, the application of the benefits of his redemptive task, paragraph 8, we're almost there, just two more paragraphs, the exclusivity of Christ as mediator, paragraph 9, and then the power of his threefold mediatorship relative to the elect. So. That shouldn't just be, hey, a bunch of complex statements. I think that illustrates or that sets forth the glory and the scope of the doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter writes in his, uh, in his first epistle, to those who believe he, Christ, is precious. And so in our, in our goings forth as Christians in this lower world by the Spirit's aid, studying so blessed a Savior, we're not just engaging in an exercise of you know, absorbing truth statements. We're doing that, but we're, we're doing that because there really is a living and true Christ behind those truth statements that we're to glory in, that we're to believe in, that we're to rejoice in. And if he is precious to us, then we are to know him and we are to study him. And we are hopefully in this exercise to jettison from our contemplations those things that aren't true of him because we're to know him aright. Um, our study, the identity of Christ, we noted last time, and, and Jim's mentioned this before as well, one of the most, if not the most important questions ever asked is asked by Christ, 
Who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? Who Christ is is absolutely vital to the Christian faith. The correct answer to that question is absolutely vital to the Christian faith and, and proves such as saints who rightly answer it. And so we want to know the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Augustine on this exercise. He was made that which he made, that what he made might not perish. Very man, very God, God and man, whole Christ. This is the Catholic faith. And he'll, Catholic, small c, if you will, the universal faith believed by true Christians. Hillary, not Clinton, uh, Hillary of uh, Poitiers, if that's the right pronouncement. Uh, this is the true faith for human blessedness, to preach at once the Godhead and the manhood, to confess the word and the flesh, neither forgetting the God because he is man, nor ignoring the flesh because he is the word. And so the study of the identity of Christ is absolutely vital. So this morning's focus, we're going to look at the deity of Christ, and then next Lord's Day, Lord willing, the, actually the one after that, uh, we'll look at his incarnation and humanity. So on the deity of Christ, we're going to look simply at, do th at two things, what it doesn't mean and what it does mean. So it's a simple outline to our study this morning. We'll read from the confession. We'll read from our Bibles uh, to see... Uh, the clarity with respect to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a cardinal truth. Uh, it is a truth of the first order. One of the first cardinal tenets concerning the orthodox confession of the Son, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Bovink writes this, It is clear that the Christian religion, that is the true fellowship between God and humans, can be maintained in no other way than by the confession of the deity of Christ. For if Christ is not truly God, he is only a human being. And however highly he may be placed, he can neither in his person nor in his work be the content and object of the Christian faith. So we, we study Christ as Christians, recognizing at the outset and glorying in the fact that he is very God. Um, one of the, just before we jump in, it, uh, some of you may not have come across this, but it is the objections of the God-haters and the heretics, even in our own day, that the, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't confessed in the early church, that it was an, an ecclesiastical imposition, that it was even a political imposition by Constantine upon uh, early Christians, you know, he... Uh, he and they, the, the, the wicked church, um, dashed away the Arians, uh, the true Christians, uh, in the early church. But the confession of the deity of Christ, obviously we have it in the Old Testament, promise that the Christ would be divine. Obviously we have it in the New Testament, Christ himself identifying, self-identifying as God. Um, but the early church is not absent of this declaration. And one of the uh, two things with regards to that observation in the early church, uh, one in the, just at the, the turn of the second century, so around 120 AD, uh, an unbelieving Roman observed that Christians were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to God. Um, so even an unbelieving Roman realized that the Christians believed in the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a Christian, Aristides of Athens, who only a couple decades later, around 140-ish, 
wrote this, the Christians then trace the beginning of their religion from Jesus the Messiah, and he is named the Son of God Most High. And it is said that God came down from heaven and from a Hebrew virgin assumed and clothed himself with flesh. So that's only two quotes to note that the early church most certainly believed in the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at that now then. And let's first jettison from our minds what we don't mean when we say or talk about the deity of Christ. So first off, we do not mean, and when I'm writing these things, I'm not just making them up. Um, these are things that uh, heretics have believed historically uh, and that some even uh, would believe today. So what we do not mean when we speak of the deity of Christ. First, we do not mean that Christ is one God among many in a pantheon of deities, of course. Um, we're not Greco-Roman pagans. We're, you know, we're not, uh, uh, we're not you know, sitting somewhere in Athens um, bringing offerings of, uh, of leaves and things uh, atop Mount Olympus or, uh, or whatever. We, uh, we do not mean that Christ is one God among many in a pantheon of deities. Greco-Roman religion, Norse mythology, Hinduism, uh, all of that sort of garbage. Secondly, we do not mean that he is the second of three beings or individually willing self-conscious persons in a divine triumvirate. I know that's a lot of language. But sadly, some even who would confess themselves as Christians believe that today. Uh, 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 James Dolzell uses the language of God incorporated uh, as if the Trinity is simply Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three separate willing subjects who simply have a harmony. Their oneness isn't a substantial oneness, their oneness isn't a oneness of nature, but it's simply a oneness of, of harmony. Um, that's not what the deity of Christ is. He isn't the second of three beings um, or individually willing self-conscious persons. He is the second person of the triune God of one substance, power, and eternity with Father and Spirit. Thirdly, we do not mean that he is of a similar or derived substance to or from the Father. That was an ancient error, that he's not of one substance with the Father, just a similar or derived substance. Fourthly, we do not mean that he is divine and that he is filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, though, according to his assumed humanity, he is filled with the Holy Spirit or given the Holy Spirit above measure, but his divinity is not seen in that he is filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, fifthly, we do not mean that he is an exalted man, his deity being seen in that he is some way chosen or honored by the Father. Um, that's uh, that's uh, an ancient and a modern heresy as well. So that his deity is somehow acquired or rewarded uh, or is a status granted by the completion of heroic deeds. He's not Hercules. Uh, you know, he's not... Um, he's not some, uh, some man, an exalted man, that's been rewarded with deity. We do not mean, sixthly, that he is, has merited his divinity by virtue of his obedience, a la Mormonism. Uh, so he hasn't received his deity by uh, the perfection of obedience. He has received a reward by the perfection of his obedience according to the perfection of his mediatorial work, but his deity, of course is not seen in, uh, as a reward for uh, being a man perfecting obedience. 
Seventhly, and approaching lastly, we do not mean that as the personification, okay, bear with me on this one with the language, I'll, 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 but this is what some people believe, and too many people actually believe it. We do not mean that as the personification of the eternal word or an impersonal logos, he was an enfleshed agent of God and so can be called God in some ambassadorial way. So the Sassinians the anti-Trinitarians of the 17th century that our heroes railed against in defending the deity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity, some Messianic Jews in our own day, Unitarians, um, believe that particular quote-unquote doctrine of Christ, that he was an eternal idea, kind of, in the mind of God that became enfleshed at the Incarnation. Of course, we reject that uh, as heresy, and that's not what we uh, mean when we speak of the deity of Christ. Two more. I, I, I don't know what number I'm on, but I'll say eighthly. Ah, oh, thank you. That was right. Uh, we do not mean that he is the Father or the Spirit, uh, a la modalism, that he is the Father and the Spirit. Um, you know, modalists of the Sibelian heretics of old, uh, present in our own day, you know, subscribe to such a doctrine that the Father sort of became the Son who became the Spirit. Or, um, you know, sort of another variation is that these are three manifestations of the one God, uh, that the one God manifests himself in those three particular ways. Um, and then lastly, we do not mean that he is 33 and one-third deity splitting the Godhead with the Father and the Spirit. Um, I know Jim and I have, have you know, repeated that on a number of occasions, and I know nobody believes that, but it's important to, to inoculate ourselves against bad theology in seeing the Trinity as somehow uh, carved up into thirds, the essence carved up into thirds, and Christ being 33 and one-third percent uh, of that. That is uh, incorrect. So what do we mean? The simple confession of the truth, we are saying that Christ is true and eternal God. He is essential deity, God in essence and in truth of one substance with the Father and Spirit. Um, this is John Owen on this particular, uh, on this particular truth. He writes, um, It is asserted and believed by the church that Jesus Christ is God, the eternal Son of God. That is, he is proposed, declared, and revealed unto us in the Scripture to be God, that is, to be served, worshipped, believed in, obeyed as God, uh, upon the account of his own divine excellencies. And whereas we believe and know that he was man, that he was born, lived, and died as a man, it is declared that he is God also, and that as God he did pre-exist in the form of God before his incarnation, which was affected by voluntary actings of his own, which could not be without a pre-existence in another nature. This is proposed unto us to be believed upon by divine test or, or to be believed upon divine testimony and by divine revelation. So we do mean when we speak of the deity of Christ, that he is true and eternal God, essential deity, God in essence and truth of one substance with the Father and Spirit. Um, our confession, going back to it, uses this language, the Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made. Um, our, um, our particular Baptist 
forebears from the Holy Scriptures and in concert with creeds and confessions before them recognize the, the full and unmitigated deity of our Lord Jesus Christ and oneness of substance with Father and Spirit. Um, so he is, again, very and essential God, God of God, light of light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Now, there are some necessary accompanying assertions regarding this truth. Uh, so first, we have the simple confession of the truth, and secondly, some necessary accomp accompanying assertions regarding this truth. What also does the Bible say, and what also must we glean by... Uh, necessary consequence that the Bible speaks with respect to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the first uh, uh, is that the Son has essential identity with the Father and Spirit. Everything the Father is, Christ is, save for being the Father. Um, when we read, for example, in, in chapter 2, paragraph 1, um, on the doctrine of God, and it speaks with respect to the uh, perfections of the divine being. It speaks, about, um, it speaks about simplicity, about pure actuality, about immutability, about immensity, about impassibility. It speaks about God being most absolute, most loving, most holy, that he is a most pure spirit without body, parts, and passions. To, to summarize that he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all of his glorious perfections, that is true of Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, so that there is no perfection that the Father has that the Son and Spirit don't have. Um, this is what we are saying as an assertion with respect to the deity of Christ. There is one substance, power, and eternity. The, the distinctions in the Godhead have to do at the point of relations. The Father is unbegotten, eternally begetting the Son. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from Father and Son. So the Son has essential identity with the Father and Spirit. Everything the Father is, Christ is, save for being the Father um, or the Spirit. Uh, again, um, I, I would direct you to uh, chapter 2 to read uh, that particular language. Secondly, uh, regarding a, necessarily, uh, a necessary accompanying assertion regarding the deity of Christ is the Son is therefore equal to the Father. So if the Son is of one substance with the Father, then the Son is equal to the Father. Uh, there are some historically and some in our own day that would argue against that. Uh, that would argue that there is some sort of eternal relation of authority on the part of the Father and submission or subordination to uh, the Father on the part of the Son. Or a relationship of authority on the part of the Father and obedience eternally on the part of the Son to the Father. So that they are not truly equal. There is no co-equality. They couldn't sing a lot of the hymns that we sing um, and they couldn't really... Um, justify their doctrine, of course, from the Scriptures, whereas Jim has pointed, uh, pointed uh, to us time and again from the Gospel of John, Jesus Christ asserts His own equality with the Father time and again in His self-identification to the unbelieving Jews uh, and for our blessed benefit, um, the strength of our faith. And so the Son is equal 
to the Father. Uh, I mean, some passages that clearly speak to that, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. Uh, Philippians, Philippians 2, 6, um, where it, it speaks concerning, Paul is writing, and he speaks uh, concerning the uh, Jesus Christ being in the form of God. Remember the language, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be uh, held on to or um, did, not consider that, uh, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, the text says. So the Bible is very explicit. The Bible is very clear that the Son of God is equal to God the Father. Thirdly, with regards to a necessary accompanying assertion, is that the Son has personal distinction relative to Father and Spirit. Um, with respect to the doctrine of the Trinity, Christ is the Word or Son. Just turn back with me to uh, paragra uh, paragraph 3 of chapter 2 for a moment. So in paragraph 3 of chapter 2, we have the doctrine of the Trinity set forth. And this is after um, asserting blessedly the perfections of the divine nature, uh, the perfections of the being of God, and then with regards to the Trinity in distinguishing Father, Son, and Spirit. Notice in paragraph 3, in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word, or Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now notice again the oneness of substance, that their oneness is not simply some sort of harmony amongst three beings or three, uh, three uh, persons with separate wills or self-consciences, but it is grounded in one substance. They are of one substance, power and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. So there it's speaking against this sort of one-third, one-third, one-third approach. Uh, and then notice this distinction, back to our, our, our point number three here. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. And then they move from threeness, or trinity, back to the unity, all infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but notice, distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. And those are simply what they had beforehand stated, unbegottenness, eternal begottenness, and eternal procession. So I know it's a lot of, lot of language and I'm speaking fast, but at, at the end here we'll have a, a time for any questions. But it's important for us in the very least to understand the essential deity of Christ, the equality of, of the Son with the Father, and then thirdly, His personal distinction relative to the Father, and then of course the Spirit. Um, fourthly, with regards to a necessary accompanying assertion regarding the deity of Christ, the Son has an unchanging deity regardless of the incarnation. This is very important to understand as well. The Son has an unchanging deity regardless of the incarnation. If Christ is God, and He is, and if God is simple, if He is temporally eternal, if he is immutable, that is unchangeable, uh, I, the Lord, do not change. If he is impassable, if he is all of those blessed perfections that he reveals to us concerning him and that we in turn believe concerning him, then the Son cannot change in the incarnation, though some do teach that. That in the condescension uh, of the incarnation, God the Son in some way changed. 
He, might, he may not have cast off his deity entirely. That is, he does not lose deity in, in sort of, in sort of the, the taking on of humanity, while they wouldn't even use that language. In, when, for example, when John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that became doesn't mean that deity you know, transmuted into humanity with deity being lost, of course. But um, while they may not say that Christ cast off his deity entirely, they would say that in some measure he set aside divine prerogatives, he set aside certain attributes, he temporarily and voluntarily set aside certain things in, in the incarnation. Well, that would mean that God can change. That would mean that God, you know, in, in essence, lied, which he cannot do when he said, I, the Lord, do not change. And so God, the Son, did not change. He has an unchanging deity regardless of the incarnation. The change respects creation and humanity. In the case of the, the union, change reflects the assumed humanity and not the one assuming. Um, for example, or just for a, a text from the early church, this is Hillary on this truth. What do we do with certain texts? Um, you know, uh, with certain texts such as in Mark 13, 32, where Jesus says that the Son doesn't know the day or hour, but only the Father. Um, so what do we do with that? Well, that must mean that Christ, um, in the condescension of the incarnation, became ignorant for a time, because he clearly says that he doesn't know the day or the hour. Um, uh, what do we do with passages such as, you know, John 14, 28, where he says, the Father is greater than I did. Perhaps something happened in the incarnation where he has become lesser relative to the Father. Uh, Hillary writes, um, with John 14, 28 and Mark 13, 32 in the background, again, um, the Son doesn't know the day or hour. Here, the heretics find opportunity to deceive the simple. These words, uttered in his humanity they falsely refer to his divinity. And because he was one and the same person in all his utterances, they claim that he spoke always of his entire self. It is this preaching of the double aspect of Christ's person, which the blessed apostle emphasizes. He points out in Christ his human infirmity and his divine power and nature. So this, this stresses the importance of one of those interpretive rules or observations regarding the doctrine of Christ and what Christians are to believe is we come to our Bibles with that reality in mind that he is very God but also very man yet one Christ and so when Christ speaks with regards to ignorance with regards to weariness with re and when I say ignorance not a sinful ignorance just with respect to his assumed humanity not knowing in that case the day or the hour so when he speaks of sleeping, hungering, thirsting, weariness, and all of those things, uh, those lowly things, he's speaking with regards to his humanity. He is very man, yet one Christ. When he, again, forgives sins, when he walks on water, though he walked with human feet, yet it was according to divine power, when he, when he calms the storm, when he does those divine things, of course, uh, he is speaking with respect or doing with respect to his perfect divinity. So again, it is this preaching of the double aspect of Christ's person, very God, very man, which the blessed apostle emphasizes. He points out in Christ his human infirmity and his divine power and nature. Um, so 
with, uh, and as we move along in studying the incarnation and the humanity of Christ, this will come up again, but what do we do with those texts? We don't, you know, the, the way out uh, isn't to somehow ascribe mutability to God, the Son. You know, the, the way out in inter- the way out, the, the way out in interpreting these texts, or the way to interpret these texts, texts isn't to, to bring God down, but it's to recognize that Jesus Christ, as the as the you know the ancients would say, while he did not cast off that which he was, he took to himself that which he was not. So he didn't cast off his deity. He took to himself humanity. So in those cases where it seems to say that the Son of God somehow maybe cast off or set aside divine things in his incarnation, um, we 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 don't think or believe that, but ascribe that to the assumed uh, humanity. You know, the glory of the incarnation, the glory of the incarnation is not that the eternal Son of God cast off His divinity, but that the unchanging eternal Son of God assumed to Himself our humanity and entered our lower shame with all the essential properties and common infirmities of humanity yet without sin. It's that the perfect one, unchanging in his glory, assumed our changing in glory, uh, ingloriousness, if you will, our humanity, um, in order to redeem sinful man. So thirdly, under what we do mean, the creedal language declaring this truth. The creedal language declaring this truth from the outset of Christianity, and even in the, even in the pages of our Bibles, we have creeds that are appropriated by the divine authors, superintended by the triune God, um, that declare the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we could think of Philippians 2, 6-11. We could think of many places in the Apostle Paul, uh, for example, where he he speaks of God is manifested, God was manifested in the flesh. Uh, Other places that speak, that, that, um, uh, that are the apostles, the writers of Holy Scripture, appropriating uh, early church creeds, whether their own or, or others, in order to assert divine truth. So since the outset of Christianity, since the advent of Christ, His life, death, resurrection, and ascension, the church has proclaimed the deity of Christ, confessed it by a proper spirit-aided understanding of the Holy Scriptures. This is the Nicene Creed. Uh, 325 A.D., or is it proper to say A.D. 325? A.D. 325. Thank you. A.D. 325. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. The Creed of Chalcedon, we then, following the Holy Fathers, that is, the Nicene Fathers, and this is A.D. 451, all with one consent teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead, truly, consubstantial with the Father, according to the Godhead, begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead, God the Word." The Athanasian Creed, which was probably you know, shortly after that or around the same time, the Father is Almighty, the Son Almighty, the Holy Spirit Almighty. And yet there are not three Almighties, but one Almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. And the second London Confession of Faith. Now notice 
Notice that the, the second London Confession of Faith that we already read from, they're not doing anything new. They're not coming up with their own language. They're not trying to take what was said of old and sort of refashion it in modern phraseology. They're simply appropriating that heritage of antiquity in order to articulate um, the doctrine of Christ in consonance with uh, the, those who preceded them. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made. Uh, so it's a wonderful stream of orthodox Christology and orthodox doctrine of Christ, a biblical doctrine of Christ that is reflected creedally and confessionally, loved by Christians uh, throughout the ages. So lastly then, the biblical witness proclaiming this truth. The biblical witness proclaiming this truth. We don't come with a, with a fine-tooth comb to the Scriptures trying to, 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 to scrape through and find you know, little grains or, or nuggets of the deity of Christ. It is, it's everywhere. Um, and and almost, almost always... It's, it's not for this rigorous defense of the deity of Christ. It's simply asserted. It's simply owned. It's simply observed. It's simply narrated concerning. Um, it was, it was, it's axiomatic for the Christian um, uh, in essence and in truth. And so the biblical witness proclaiming this truth and just, just five things as we move in the, in the last 15 minutes towards a close. The deity of Christ first is proved by explicit statements concerning his deity. So there are explicit statements concerning his deity. As Pastor Butler's been preaching through the Gospel of John, he has rightly come back often to the prologue language. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's explicit, that's clear, that is um, the deity of Christ uh, explicitly proved. Um, by an explicit statement. Also, Thomas's profession in John 20, 28, where he declares, you know, before the, the risen Christ, after the Christ was very gracious to him um, in, in, you know, showing him the, the prints, uh, the, the wounds, the prints of the nails, uh, allowing him to, you know, to see, to touch, and that sort of a thing, to know that it is he. Um, Thomas professes gloriously the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ when he says, my Lord and my God. Um, it, it's not as the Jehovah's Witnesses and the, the Muslims blasphemously assert that it was some sort of you know, blasphemous exclamation of surprise. Um, it was simply Thomas simply confessing the Lord God, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as God. <laughs> Isaac, I see you over there. I know simply, I'm sorry. Um, but Jesus Christ is God. My Lord and my God. What a great, I think, I think it's Robert Raymond who called that the, the supreme Christological statement of the fourth gospel. Thomas's confession before the disciples and before Christ, my Lord and my God. And that's our profession 2,000 years later. My Lord and my God, our blessed Savior. So we have um, explicit statements regarding his deity. You can also note Romans 9.5. 1 Timothy 3.16, God was manifested in the flesh. Uh, Titus 2.13 and 2 Peter 1.1. Now secondly, regarding the biblical witness proclaiming this truth, the deity of Christ is proved by the self-witness of Christ to his own divinity. 
the self-witness of Christ to his own divinity. You can turn with me to John 8. Um, Pastor Butler, a number of, uh, a number of, a number of Sundays ago, was in, was in John 8, and observing the clear statements of the Lord Jesus Christ with respect to his deity. So in John 8, when you get there, you can uh, go to verse, um, verse 23. John 8, verse 23, And he, that is Christ, said to them, You are from beneath, I am from below. You are from this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. A number of blessed you know, nuggets of clarity that the Lord Jesus Christ brings out there. First of all, he's identifying himself as the I am uh, of Old Testament divine revelation. He is God. He is Yahweh. Um, as well, he is asserting what we have been asserting, that the knowledge of Christ as such is absolutely vital for salvation. Um, or it is a, a profession indicative of one who is truly saved. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. A rejection of the deity of Christ puts you outside the pale of saving faith. So Jesus Christ here identifies himself um, as God. And also, a, a declaration in the same chapter, uh, verse 58, Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Uh, another identification of himself uh, with as the God of Old Covenant, Old Testament revelation. Um, and it's not just simply Jesus here saying, I pre-existed prior to Abraham, as if to say, before Abraham was, I was. Um, he's using the language of uh, God's own self-identification to identify himself. Um, and uh, as well, we could note John 18, 5 and 6 and Matthew 22, 44. A wonderful statement with respect to the language in, um, in John 18 from Cyril. Uh, Cyril. Cyril here speaks or is writing with regards to when Christ is lifted up upon the cross as that being a declaration of the deity of Christ. And he writes, Therefore does the Savior say that his cross shall be a sign to the Jews and a most evident demonstration of his being by nature God. Since looking only, he says to the flesh, you believe that I am mere man and deem that I am one like yourselves, but the dignity of the Godhead and the glory from thence do not so much as enter your mind. A most, this is Cyril speaking as if Christ. A most evident token to you of my being God of truly God and light of light shall be your all dread and most lawless deed of daring, the cross that is and the death of the flesh thereupon. And so we have wonderful language from the lips of our Savior himself with regards to his identity as God. So, the deity of Christ is proved by explicit statements. The deity of Christ is proved by the self-witness of Christ to his own identity. Thirdly, the deity of Christ is proved by the New Testament application of Old Testament texts to Christ. 
And there are many, of course. Um, and, you know, we need to go into to worship in 40 minutes so we can't uh, rehearse all of them. Um, but the deity of Christ is proved from the New Testament applying Old Testament text to Christ. So New Testament, uh, Old Testament text with respect to Yahweh, with respect to God, applied to the Lord Jesus Christ, whether Himself applying them to Himself or the apostles, the gospel writers applying them to Him. We could note Hebrews 1.8, citing Psalm 45.6. It's a wonderful language that the, the Apostle Paul uses in Hebrews with regards to bringing together many psalms um, in identifying the Lord Jesus Christ as God. The one particularly in verse 8, but to the Son He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of Your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, Your God, has anointed You with the oil of gladness more than Your companions. And remember, this is after the Apostle Paul had already written that the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 2, uh, whom He has appointed heir of all th things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power. And so, most certainly, um, Jesus Christ is very God of very God. Hebrews 1, 10 to 12 a citation of Psalm 102.25, not a citation, a quotation of Psalm 102.25-27. to 27. Uh, John 12.41, remember in John 12.41, um, John speaking with respect to Isaiah, um, and specifically that, uh, well, I think bringing, bringing together there Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6, and John closes that section in a sense by saying these things Isaiah saw, uh, uh, saw when, when he saw Christ and, and wrote of him. Um, so that, that scene of uh, in the year King Uzziah died where uh, he sees the Lord high and lifted up with the, the, the train, even just the hem of his robe filling the temple um, and, the, and the angels singing holy, holy, holy. That is with respect and applied rightly to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Ephesians 4, 8-10 you can note um, a, uh, an application of Psalm 68, 17 to 18. And so many titles used, uh, you know, Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. So many titles um, explicitly of Yahweh in the Old Testament applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, fourthly, the deity of Christ is proved by divine perfections predicated of him. Uh, immutability, for example. We just spoke about, uh, we just uh, uh, spoke concerning that Malachi 3 language, I the Lord do not change, um, and applying it to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, acknowledging that Christ in the incarnation uh, remained truly what he always eternally was, the Son of God in essence and in truth. Uh, Hebrews 1.11 speaks with regards to his immutability. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. Um, eternity. Micah 5.2 speaks with regards to the eternity of Christ. Not just a successive uh, everlastingness, but an awe-temporal eternity, that there is no yesterday, today, and tomorrow, but an everlasting um, um, unsuccessive now with respect to God. A boundless 
uh, aboundless now uh, with regards to God. He is uh, temporally eternal. Uh, uh, Proverbs 8, 22 to 23, uh, also Revelation 1, 11. Omniscience uh, is ascribed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, these are all things only true of deity. Um, there is no man that is unchangeable. If, uh, if you've ever seen one, your eyes deceive you. Um, there is uh, only one that is unchangeable, immutable, uh, and that is the everlasting God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But omniscience as well is ascribed to the Lord Jesus Christ in John 16.30, uh, 21.17, Revelation 2.23, to name only three. Uh, omnipresence is true of the Son of God, Matthew 18.20 and John 3.13. And of course, omnipotence is ascribed in Revelation 1.18, 11.17, and Hebrews 1.3. This is only bringing forth five perfections of the divine being, five perfections of the Son of God, uh, but all of that to say the deity of Christ is proved by divine perfections predicated of him. Uh, these are things only true of deity that are applied gloriously to the Son of God, the champion, the captain of our salvation. And lastly, but not exhaustively with regards to biblical witness, lastly, the deity of Christ is proved by divine works ascribed to him. The deity of Christ is proved by divine works ascribed to him. He is the creator of all things. John 1.3, Hebrews 1, uh, 2 and 10, Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Uh, the, the Son of God is creator. He is also... Secondly, uh, the preserver and the providential Lord, the God of providence. Hebrews 1.3, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Speaking about his unchanging deity, yet his suffering humanity united together in the one person, um, there, there's a wonderful, uh, wonderful interview that uh, James Dozal did with regards to this point. It was on the point of impassibility. But, but he acknowledges, as others have acknowledged, acknowledged in the past, that at the time Christ is crying out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He is at the same time uphold, upholding all things by the word of his power. We don't, we don't have a weak and denigrated deity uh, somehow upon the cross uh, suffering for our humanity. We have the blessed unchangeable one who assumed our humanity with all those essential properties and common infirmities yet without sin on the cross crying out according to that assumed humanity, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But at the same time, he is upholding all things by the word of his power. Glorious Savior, blessed Lord. Uh, the bestowal of resurrection life John 5.21, 5.36, and 6.40. Um, Christ is the bestower of glorious resurrection life. He is the resurrection and the life. And then the forgiveness of sins. Again, only to name four. The forgiveness of sins in Matthew 9.6. Uh, uh, so uh, hopefully in this short period of time, we've gained a, uh, an extra measure of appreciation for the identity of Christ as truly and eternal God. Um, God of God, light of light, true God from true God. Equal with the Father, uh, co-substantial, consubstantial with Father and Spirit. Um, that blessed one who assumed our humanity for our redemption and recovery. 
As you go uh, about your, your lives, as we go about our lives as Christians, we are to, to ever and always glory in the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we'll see next time, we're likewise to glory in that incarnation and the assumption of our humanity, which was unto the end that he might save a multitude of sinners. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for studying your truth. We rejoice um, in the, the preciousness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Truly, we pray that it would be true of us uh, to those who believe he is precious. We pray that we would lay hold of our blessed Savior, that we would glory in him as very God, as very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Help us in our knowledge of him, in our growth in the grace, and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And do bless us now as we go into worship. Might we honor you, might we serve you, and might we sing the praises of Father, Son, and Spirit. It's in the name of Christ that we pray.